one of our core values. Bridges are better than barriers. And it sounds, it sounds nice, and, and we all get excited when we say bridges are better than barriers, but it changes. It changes when you meet Charlie and Christy, because they're awesome people. Um, they're my friends, and they're my friends because last fall, we sat together in a circle for eight weeks and talked about our faith. And I brought my questions about faith, and they brought their questions about faith, and we just learned from each other. And we learned about each other. And now, now I know them. And because I know them, they're my, they're my friends. And I want that for you. I want you to have people that you can sit in a circle with and talk about your faith and bring your questions and that you can learn from and they can learn from you. Um, last uh, couple weeks ago, Pastor Trevor made the, made the ask that we would get involved with in, in a community group as a church-wide deal. And 200 of you responded and it was incredible. We're so thankful for that. But I'm super good at math and I realize that 200 isn't all of you. Um, and you need to have your Charlie and Christy. You need to have people that you sit around a circle with and you learn, you learn from their faith and they learn from your faith. So if you've not done that yet, when you leave today, stop by Next Steps. Somebody's there and they're excited to get your information and get you plugged into a small group. You don't want to miss it because core values are neat. Experiencing core values is incredible and you want to be a part of that. We can't stay here. Pastor Trevor talked about it last week. If you missed last week's message, you really want to get online or get on the app and watch that. Um, last week he told us where we were going. The video we had last week showed us why we need to go, why we must go where he's told us we're going. And I'm here this week to tell us how. How are we going to do it? How are we going to get there? I am the blueprint, the X's and O's guy this morning. So uh, I hope you're ready for that. Uh, we've got, we're going to have some, just a little bit of, of fun this morning. But to get us to the same perspective, to get us all looking from the same spot. I need to find out who is in the room with me this morning. Who's, who came Sunday morning of Labor Day weekend? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read you a list. It's a test I've developed to determine if you are, in fact, decent people. Um, <laughs> if there is decency among you. Um, so it's a test. It's really simple. Uh, you'll know really early on if you're a decent person or not. So uh, I'll just, I'll name two sides and just think in your head, which one, which one do you root for? Do you root for Cinderella are you one that roots for the sisters? <laughs> are you rooting for Indiana Jones to get to the artifacts first, or are you just really rooting for the Germans? Um, when you read about 300 Spartans defending their homeland against the whole of the Persian army, who are you rooting for in that stance? Um, my wife needed to identify with this list, and so do you root for Jason Bourne, or do you root for the program? Um, we're all in, all in on that. Uh, do you root for the Rebel Alliance, Luke and Princess Leia? Or do you root for Darth Vader and the Empire? And then, then lastly, because everybody that went through the early 80s needs something to remind them of it. Um, do you root for Daniel and Mr. Miyagi? Or are you a fan of the Cobra Kai? <laughs> we laugh because it's, it's easy to know which side we end on. We, we root for the underdog, right? We, we love to root for the underdog, even though it doesn't make sense. The odds are stacked against them. Vegas has told us in no uncertain terms their chance of winning is extremely low. But we love to root for the underdog. I have a theory behind that, actually a, a couple. Um, I think we root for the underdog because that's the easiest place for us to see our story. That it's easy for us to copy and paste our life into the life of the underdog. Because we personally know those obstacles that we've went against. Those odds that that either beat us or maybe, maybe we had a really good day and we beat the odds that day. But it's easy for us to identify with the underdog. 
And it's also the underdog story is the place where we find heroes. It's the place where we find brave women and strong men and fearless children fighting the odds, going against what seems rational because they had a purpose that was greater um, than them at that moment. So we all root for the underdog. And I want us, one of us thinking from that perspective, us sitting in that seat this morning, because what Pastor Trevor shared last week and the video shared last week clearly puts us in the role of the underdog. Because last year on this weekend, there was more people in our state that went to church than do this weekend, this year. In the last year, our state has become more unchurched. Our area is one that lacks an economic opportunity. Six of the 10 worst counties to live in, in our nation, are within driving distance of us. They share our state name. Our area is decimated by drug use, both prescribed and, and not prescribed. We are 50 years into the war on poverty, 35 years into the war on drugs, and best I can tell, we're going over two. We are the underdog. And if we can get to that perspective this morning, I want to share with you what we feel like as a church is the grand plan for what the next several years holds. How it is that when we ask God to give us Kentucky, our plan for how we're going to do it. Trevor told us the where. The, our video last week did a great job clarifying why we must go. Because there's so much hurt. There's so much lack of hope. But you need to know the how. How are we going to do it? So here's our grand plan. Our, our plan in its to totality this morning. Our plan is you. This is our plan for how we're going to take the state. Some of you thought, great. Some of you thought, that's a terrible plan. That plan will not work. I've seen that plan. It doesn't go great. Our plan is you. And our plan is you because when Jesus looked at a world that needed help, when Jesus looked at a people that were captives and were not free, and they needed hope, and they needed salvation, his plan was men. His plan was women. His plan was people. And so if that's, if that's his plan, then that's going to be ours. He took 12 and changed the world. So with a group this size, with a group that's sitting in Somerset, with a group that's watching online, what could we do? What could happen? Because I think we can all rationally say that trying to use government, hoping on culture, hasn't worked. We're not going to legislate people to be good people. One, because we're not after good people. We're after saved people. We're after forgiven people. And as a church, 50 years ago, we traded it in just wanting good people. And it was a terrible trade. And we're going to reclaim it. Jesus took 12 and changed the world. Our plan is to take you and change Kentucky. But let's look at how Jesus did it. Let's look at how Jesus did um, the one-on-one -on -one interactions with calling his 12 and putting them into action, into motion. And how those 12 turned around and reached those that they, that they knew. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, uh, we see Jesus moving from one area of ministry to another. Um, verse 9 opens up in chapter 9 of Matthew with, as Jesus went on from there. There. Where, where was there? There was his early ministry. There was the Sermon on the Mount had just been preached. He had just healed a couple people, just fed people for the first time. He was just starting to get popular. 
He was just starting to make a difference. He was just starting to have his name be known in society and in the area around there. I mean, people were coming hungry and leaving fed. People were coming not walking and they were carrying their mats when they left. A centurion servant had been healed. Uh, Jesus was doing things. He was teaching as nobody taught. He had, he had just taught for the first time that uh, you should build your house on the rock and not on the sand. I mean, this is, this is early on in Jesus' Jesus's, uh, Jesus's ministry, and he is leaving somewhere where he's super comfortable, leaving somewhere where crowds are starting to form because he's living life intentionally. He's living life on purpose. So instead of doing what, what I probably would have done and maybe, maybe what you would have done and staying in the place where he was comfortable and staying in the place where he had, um, where he was loved, where, pe- where he was popular, he kept on moving because he knew there was more people that needed to know, more people that needed to hear. And so Jesus went on from there. He left there. And he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Now, I need to tell you a little bit about Matthew's seat. You may recognize Matthew as one of the 12, one of the 11 that stayed good. Uh, Matthew's, Matthew's one, of, one of the original 12 that Jesus called. But before he gets there, before he gets to be part of what Jesus is doing, he's a tax collector. I want to tell you all the implications that him sitting in that seat involved. See, this was an occupied people. The Roman Empire occupied where Jerusalem was and all of Israel. So they weren't free. They weren't able to do what they want when they want. They weren't completely slaves, but they sure weren't weren't free people. And Matthew is there as a representative of the the occupying force. He's a traitor. Um, He's a guy that every time he sits down there, he is doing the bidding of the captors. Um, And Matthew's seat is especially difficult because uh, like any good empire, I don't know if you've studied evil evil empires, but like any good empire, uh, the Romans decided we're not going to bother paying the tax collectors because that's a little bit too much work. Um, So what we're going to do is tax collectors, you just take as much money off the people as you want. Here's how much money we need at the end of the day. So they would say, the Smiths owe $35, and Matthew would be great. Matthew would turn around and hand the Smiths a bill for 50, and he would get 15. And the people knew it. The people knew that that's how he made his living, that he swindled, that he stole, that he represented those that were against them, those that didn't want good for them. That's Matthew's seat. And Jesus sees him there. Jesus walks by, and he makes eye contact with him there. This is Matthew's account of what happens in that moment. That's a big deal. Jesus sees him sitting in that seat and he doesn't do the knee-jerk reaction of maybe what you would do or what I would do or, or what you've heard the church do for the last half century. He doesn't point out to Matthew that his seat was shameful, that his seat didn't have any honor, that he was wrong to be in that seat. Jesus didn't do that. He did something much more caring, much more thoughtful, um, and I know that Jesus understood what Matthew's seat was about. He, he fully understood what was happening there and how uh, all the wrong that was taking place there. But Jesus' response to Matthew was, was different than, than mine would have been and perhaps yours would have been. Jesus said to Matthew, follow me. He told him, he, him being Jesus. And Matthew got up and followed him. Now, when I read that as a small child, I was wondering like, Matthew, did your parents teach you nothing? You don't go with strangers. When people offer you candy to get in the car, you say no. That's just things you do. Such terrible parents for Matthew. But I think something was different in this situation. Because as far as we know, Matthew and Jesus had never met. 
They had never shook hands. When, when Jesus looks at Matthew, that's, that's a first time. But Jesus' reputation had preceded him. His reputation had arrived before he had. Maybe like your reputation, maybe, maybe like my reputation. Sometimes they arrive in situations, they arrive in people's lives before we arrive in people's lives. Sometimes that's a good thing and sometimes that's something to overcome. In this situation, it was a really good thing. It's because Matthew knew everybody because everybody had to pay taxes. Everybody had to come to Matthew, Matthew's tax booth. Everybody had to stop by and get swindled by Matthew. So Matthew knew everybody. He knew all the gossip. He knew what was going on, all the rumors about what Jesus was doing, that people had come with a need and it had been met, that people had come hurt or sick or lame and they had been healed, that Jesus was teaching as no one else had taught. Matthew knew these things. And when Jesus' reputation arrived before he did, Matthew had enough confidence to go. Because Matthew did what you do and what I do in almost every situation. I studied economics, so I call it a cost-benefit analysis. You may not get that technical with it. But Matthew looked at where he was and what Jesus offered. And he decided what Jesus offered was better than where he was sitting. Which I imagine is very similar to how you came to faith, if you're a Christ follower. It's how I came to faith. I, for a moment of rare clarity, saw that where I was sitting, how I was doing, what I was doing in life, wasn't as good as what God was offering. Wasn't as good as Jesus' offer to come and follow me. And when I saw that, I decided to make a move. That's what Matthew saw. He weighed where he was versus what could be and decided what could be was so much better. Because when he got to leave the booth, he got to leave the shame. He got to leave the growing up to fill the role that no parent wants their kid to have. I mean, no, no parent wants their kid to be the one in the community that everybody wishes wasn't there. And that's kind of what, that's kinda what, what Matthew's was. So, so Matthew follows Jesus. And Jesus doesn't point out anything, doesn't make any moral requirements, doesn't have any standard for Matthew. But be all right leaving where you are to where I want you to go. It's his only standard for Matthew. Later on in the day, we see uh, Matthew and Jesus wrapping up their first day together. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with his disciples. You see, they got to the end of the day, and they do what I do at the end of the day. It was time to eat. And so Jesus invited his friends. They happened to all be disciples. Matthew invited all his friends, and they happened to not be disciples. Uh, and this is, this is Matthew writing this. He doesn't identify people by name, but obviously he would have known the names of the people around his own table because this, this is the group of friends that you have and the group of friends that I have. This is a group that when you send out a group text for dinner, they respond. This is a group that when you call and invite them to go somewhere, if they can, they make it. This is a group that Matthew had influence with. I'll remind you that Matthew knew everybody. Everybody in town knew Matthew. But this was the group that would listen to him. Because there's a group of people that will only listen to you. And there's a group of people that will only listen to me. And they won't respond when I give them recommendations. You, the people that will listen to you won't, won't follow my advice. Um, and yours probably, the, the ones that I can speak to probably won't follow your advice. But we each have a group, we have a circle of influence that we can make a difference with because through relationship and through experience, we have earned a voice in their life. And that's a valuable thing. It is not something to, to squander. That is not something to, uh, to use lightly. It's not something to use absentmindedly. A voice in somebody's life is an incredibly powerful thing. I want you to notice something about the crowd that was at Matthew's table for, for this dinner. They were very different. 
They believe differently. They behave differently. But yet they're together and there doesn't seem to be any tension. There doesn't seem to be any problem that either Matthew or other observers notice. This story is in scripture three times. It's in Matthew, it's in Mark, and it's in Luke. And it's the same story in all three places. Here's what we learn from the diversity of the group at this table is that we are rarely comfortable in places where we're unwelcome. Have you ever been to a place where you weren't welcome? Think about that place where you were at and you just knew you had to look like, are my shoes tied? Am I dressed right? Did I come too early? Did I come way too late? I don't, I don't fit in. I'm not, I'm not welcome here. <clears throat> Have you ever felt that way? I bet you weren't comfortable in that room, in that conversation, maybe even in that relationship. People were comfortable around Jesus. People were comfortable around, people are comfortable around their friends and people are comfortable around Jesus. And that's a big deal. That's something we have to learn. That's a tension that as a church we have to constantly fight for is that, is that our priority has to be that our place, our gatherings, our environments are the most comfortable for those who are coming next. And if anybody has to be uncomfortable, it should be those of us that are already here. Because those that are coming next, much more important. Much more important. It's a big deal. We're asking God for the state of Kentucky. We have to make sure that they're comfortable when they get here. And people are rarely comfortable in places where they aren't welcome. Jesus made it a point. He was intentional to spend time with people who believed and behaved nothing like him. This is hard to do. This takes effort. And it can easily get bypassed in life because life can get busy and it can run into money for school lunches and we've got to get to a game or a recital or a practice and life can just get completely full of the next business trip or the next family trip or the next trip to the doctor. And before we know it, we look up and everybody around us looks like us. They sound like us. They dress like us. We can't even argue about politics with people around us because we all believe and vote the same. But Jesus made it a point to spend time with people that believed and behaved totally different than him. I'll encourage you that your life will be better if you'll do this. This is Jesus leading us into an area where we need to be led because it is much more comfortable for us to stay in a place where people agree with us all the time. And we don't have to think about conversations because they're just comfortable. But if we can be intentional with how we live, we can learn a lot. And if our kids are watching, they can learn a lot about how much it matters to be intentional with how we live. So there was a group, I mentioned earlier that Jesus had just gotten popular and that he had just started getting a following. And so when there's, when there's a new spike in popularity, there's a new spike in somebody getting some attention, those in power, those that currently have a say-so, always have something to say. And so there was a group that observed this dinner that Matthew and his friends were having with Jesus. They're called the Pharisees. They are the rule keepers. They are the people that you made fun of in school and they deserved it. Like they kind of had it coming. Like some people, you know, we shouldn't pick on people, but like some people, you know, when they tell on the whole class to the teacher and the teacher's out of the room, you're kind of like, ah, what are you doing? You kind of had it coming when we picked on you. That is the Pharisees. They are the rule keepers. They're the ones that have power because they keep the rules and they enforce the rules on others. So they're observing this dinner. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now the Pharisees knew people just like Matthew knew people. It's interesting to me that they didn't call them by name. They called them by a label. 
Because when I judge people, I call them by labels. And if, if you're the type that judge people too, you probably don't call them by name because it's much, more, much easier to call them, by, call them by labels. The Pharisees did the same thing. Um, I also find it interesting that they're not, they're not asking Jesus and they're not asking the people at the table. They're asking third parties. They're asking the disciples. Something incredibly valuable um, to us as a church and to our future is captured in the idea here. And it's about influence. And it's about, it's about how we want to have influence. And one way that we can squander influence. We will never have influence with those that we talk about. We'll only have it with those that we talk to. Because you've straightened out people before, if you're anything like me, when you're alone in your car. Did that affect them at all? Did they change the way they live at all because you yelled at them in the car when they weren't there? It doesn't affect my seven-year-old, I'll tell you that. He, is, he doesn't even notice when I correct him and he's not there. When we talk about people, we squander influence. That's why it's important in a time and an age where our opinion can get out unfiltered to as many friends as we have and as many friends as they have if they share it. So important to watch what we say. Because yes, you can hold that opinion, but, are you, but is, is your friend's chance at faith worth you sharing your opinion? It's not. Your friend's worth more than that. You were worth more than that. Because whoever had influence with you and helped you come to faith, they spoke with you. They didn't talk about you. Didn't talk away from you. They talked to you. This is something that's incredibly important. We've got to get this right because you're our plan. We're asking God to give us Kentucky and we're asking him to do it through you. And we can't do it if we squander our influence. We can't do it if we waste our influence sharing opinions that don't matter, that only drive people away. There's important things we can talk about. We should stick with those important things. Jesus, being Jesus, um, overhears what the Pharisees are saying, really what they're accusing him of. He responds, on hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Because you can't get a need met if you don't know you have a need. I've always read this story my whole life as Jesus gets Matthew to follow him and that's a big deal. And then Matthew gets his friends saved out of their lifestyle and the Pharisees are just there as a bad example. But after spending some time with this scripture, I, I don't think that's it. I think Jesus is inviting both groups to faith. And sadly, the only ones who find it are the ones who knew they needed it. I think he's inviting both of them. That he had come. That it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. That he had come for, the, for those that are sick. He had come for those that knew they needed it. And the ones around the table with him and Matthew knew they were in need. Knew that there was some place better than where they were. And the Pharisees didn't. They weren't as enlightened as much as they studied and as much as they thought. They didn't have that part down. They had become blinded to the idea that it could be better than them having power. They could follow one that had all the power. So Jesus does my favorite thing that Jesus ever does because it's probably the way that I'm most like him and I'm not like him very often. But he gets sarcastic, um, which is my favorite Jesus. It's sarcastic Jesus. Uh, and so Pharisees are learned people. They're smart people. They're the smartest people in the room. They win at trivial pursuit. And he tells them, but go and learn what this means. 
I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I've not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. He's telling the people that know all the rules. You missed it. You don't know all the rules. There's one that's more important. There's one that supersedes all the little ones that you hold so dear. Go and learn what this means. Go and study a little bit. Go and get learned on this. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus is quoting the prophet Hosea from uh, Hosea's book in the Old Testament, chapter, uh, verse, chapter six, verse six. Quoting what God is after, that he desires mercy and not sacrifice. Because what God desires is for us to experience mercy. Mercy is power withheld. It is, it is strength or impression that could be made that the holder, the owner of that decides to withhold. Because sacrifice isn't bad, but God wasn't after that. He was after mercy. Because in sacrifice, we can find a little bit of pride. We can find pride in how much we serve and how much we give and how long we've sat in that row in that seat. In sacrifice, we can let pride slip into our faith a little bit. But God wanted the Pharisees, Jesus wanted the Pharisees to know there's no room for that here. That what I'm after is mercy. And the faith that I'm offering, there's no room for pride. And that's the faith that's still being offered today. I mentioned earlier that you were our plan. We believe that God's plan hasn't changed. That he wants to take 12 regular people, then 120 women, men, and children and change the world. We believe that he wants to do that through, for our state, through you, through our church. And folks, it's getting ready to happen. It's getting ready to start. I've got a couple things I need you to leave with today so that you live on purpose, for purpose, so that when you see things in your life, you know why you see them. I need you to know that we live in a great place of opportunity, that where we live is an incredible opportunity because we have a lot of people around us that are at Matthew's table. We have a lot of people around us that know that they're in great need. They know that, or at least they hope that there's a place better than where they currently are. So that means those stories that we see on the news that break our heart, that's a great opportunity. Those stories that we scroll past on social media that we hate it because it's really embarrassing for that family, that is a place of great opportunity. Those stories that we hear about, you shouldn't let your kids hang out on that side because you don't want them influenced by that. That is a great opportunity. We live in a place of unbelievable opportunity. We have, for 50 or 60 years, looked at it all wrong. We have looked at it as no opportunity. We've looked at it as obstacles too big to conquer. We've looked at it as the government's gonna have to fix this or culture's gonna need to fix that, but they're not going to. God's hope, God's plan for changing the world was the local church. That the local church is the hope of the world. And the hope for this part of the world is our church. And our church is you. And who you have influence over and who you have say over and who will take your phone calls. Matthew gave us an incredible example about who you can invite to your table. Matthew used his voice so that others could hear Jesus' voice. That's a big deal. That means that your invite only has to be, come and see. I've met this guy, my life's different. I think you just need to come and see this. We live in an incredible age where, although it's still scary to come to church, those of you that are here for the first time today, you can, you can attest, 
Walking to church for the first time is intimidating. It's a little bit scary. Maybe those of you that have been here a long time, you forget just how intimidating it is the first time when you have to find where to park, you have to find kids, and it's just intimidating to walk through the doors. But we live in a time that's incredible because you can visit six times online before you come or 76 times before you come. You can know so much about what our church is about before you come here. So maybe that's your invitation to your friend who you have influence over. It's just, hey, that sermon last week was awesome. I think, I think you ought to watch it or d download it. Listen to it while you're driving around. We should use our voice so that others could hear Jesus' voice. And the people that I can talk to, it's a different list than the people you can talk to. And your list is only yours. The influence you have in your life, that, that, is, that is only yours. The experiences you have with them give you a say-so in their life that nobody else has. Let's use our voice so others can hear Jesus' voice. And then three years ago, three years ago, our student pastor, the guy who gave the offering talk earlier, Ryan Hartzell, um, he said something to our student ministry, to sixth through 12th graders, and it has been, um, don't tell him because he'll get a big head, but um, it's, it's been on my heart, it's been on my head ever since he said it. And that is what you think about consistently, you will do eventually. And he was using it in a negative connotation, and I think it's true, both negative and positive. If we spend time thinking about things we shouldn't do, spend time thinking about relationships we shouldn't have, spend time thinking about uh, websites we shouldn't click on, then if you spend enough time thinking about them, you will eventually do it. And that was his point that night, and it's a, it's a, a point of wisdom. But I think it's also positive. I think if whoever's on your mind when I mention the list that you have influence over, I think if they stay on your mind enough, then you'll eventually, over time, build up the courage to have the conversation with them. If every time you stop at a red light and a stop sign, you start thinking about how can I get, how can I have a conversation that matters this week with my coworker? How can I have a conversation that matters this week with my adult child or with my younger child? How can I have a conversation that makes a difference this week with my spouse? with my significant other. Your voice can help somebody hear the voice of Jesus. And if we think about it consistently, if we spend our time letting our minds set on that, on what our purpose is, I think eventually we'll have the courage to do it. Eventually we'll have the courage to pull the trigger and have the conversation that's oh so scary. Because I know it is. But it's a big deal. And your voice, it matters. And we need you. You are the plan for the future of our church, for the future of God's church. We're asking that God would give us Kentucky and we're asking, we're asking him that he would do it through you, through the friends that you have in Williamsburg, that you're talking to them before we open our campus next spring. For the friends you have in Somerset, when you share a link of our message, you invite them to try out the Somerset campus, you invite them to try it online campus, you invite them to come and try the London campus that we would be on purpose. We would live with intent. So next week, next week, we have spent time. We, we have spent effort making sure that the gospel next week, Jesus' invitation to come and follow him is as clear as we can make it. We're addressing it to different learning styles next week. I mean, we are, we're going all in with presenting the gospel next week, with giving people a chance to see that where they're set, there's a place that's better, that the seat they're in there's a place that's better, to go and follow Jesus. So I need you this week. I need you this week to think of your one. I need you to find in your mind who it is that answers your call, who it is that responds to your text that doesn't have the relationship with Jesus they need to have. I need you to get them here next week. I need you to 
find ways to have conversations with. I need you to be rocky in high school with this person. And that is you find the girl you like, you find her schedule of classes, and you get to the room before her class starts so you can arrange bumping into her when she walks into class. I'm not the only one that did it in high school. I'm not smart enough. I copied it off somebody. But I need us to be intentional. I need us to put ourselves in positions where we bump into people that we have influence with so that we can have a conversation. And here's what I know about that conversation. If you start now and pray about that conversation, ask God for favor in that conversation, that conversation will go different than if it happens on accident. It will go different than if it just happens by happen chance. It just, you happen to be in the same place at the same time. It will go different if you've taken that person's name to God this week before you bump into them. We do need you to do that. We need you to do that because we need you to know that your voice is a big deal. That if God's gonna give us Kentucky, it's gonna be through you. It's gonna be through your influence. I'm gonna pray for you this morning. I'm gonna pray for us this morning. And then we're gonna sing one last song before we leave. God, thank you for today. Thank you for your example in Jesus of how when he called Matthew, he didn't have to point out what was wrong in Matthew's life. He just had to point out that what he had was better. God, we trust that what you have is better. What you have for tomorrow is better than what we have today. So we follow you. We follow you wherever you take us. We are praying that you would give us the state of Kentucky. I pray that you would do that through my friends and through the friends of the people in this room that we would reach out to them and that their life would be different because we ask them to come and see what God is doing. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.